it's easy, it's easy to get distracted in life. It's easy to have something as your main focus. Um, you know, you could pick a number of different examples here, but to have a focus and then to find yourself getting constantly distracted. Every one of us knows this, um, this experience of human life. And I would say that the church is very good at getting distracted. We're incredibly good at making mountains out of molehills, as the old saying goes. We're incredibly good at, at um, taking something that's peripheral and bringing it to the center and, and pulling out our swords and chopping each other up over these kinds of non-central issues. What I want us to do as a community this fall is I'd like for us to put as many of the distractions aside that we can as a church family. And I'd like for us to come to the center and to the heart of the Christian faith. Uh, let me give you a quote from somebody I've quoted from several times, E. Stanley Jones, the uh, Methodist missionary early 20th century to India, who brought, in many ways, um, brought the gospel afresh to India in Gandhi's day. And this is what he says about their mission in India in the 1920s. Again, we are not there to give its people a blocked-off, rigid, ecclesiastical, and theological system, saying to them, take that in its entirety or nothing. Jesus is the gospel. He himself is the good news. Men went out in those early days and preached Jesus and the resurrection, a risen Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is Christianity. Christianity is Jesus. If you want to know anything about the God that we were just worshiping, you look at Jesus. Probably many of you have had an artichoke. I don't know how many of you have actually ever cooked an artichoke and made an artichoke, but you know, you buy it, it looks like a little bush, and you throw it in boiling water, and then you take it out of the boiling water, and you start to peel off leaf after leaf after leaf. And there's a little bit of something on the leaf, and all of those issues that the, that the church can get distracted on have some importance to them. We should talk about baptism. We should talk about a, a theology of the Lord's Supper. We should talk about what it means to really be a community of people. We should talk about what it means to be uh, a missional witness in the city. A lot of these things that we talk about are important. But the, the leaves of the artichoke only have a little bit of the meat. And as you peel them back, then you get to the center. You get to the core. Uh, you get to the heart of the matter. And when we get to Jesus, we're at the center of the artichoke. We're, we're at the heart of what Christianity is all about. And this center is where I want us to spend this fall looking. And we're going to do that through the lens of the Gospel of Luke. It's great to talk about getting to Jesus. The, question, the next question is, well, how do we get there? And that um, may sound like a simple question. How do we get to know more about this Jesus? Um, it's actually been a really complicated question for for a long time, and, and especially in the last 200 years of biblical scholarship, it's been an ex especially complicated question. But we won't go down that rabbit trail and get distracted um, too much on that. The question is, how should we find Jesus? Well, Jesus, as the quote from E. Stanley Jones just described, is alive. He's living. He's present in people. You can find Jesus in one another. You can find Jesus in beauty and in truth. You can find Jesus in art. You can find Jesus in creation. Certainly, you can find Jesus in the liturgy and in the sacraments. But one answer that the church has consistently given as the place to go and to find Jesus 
faithfully, consistently, always is to the Word of God, to this biblical Word that we, that we have. We, we've been known as people of the book, and in some ways in today's culture that can sound old-fashioned, but there's no way around it. The church has consistently said that if you want to know Jesus, come to the Word of God and you'll find Him. Jesus himself in John 5 speaks about the scriptures that point to him. He says to the Pharisees, you know, you're searching for life in these things, but you don't realize that they point to me. And when we come to the scriptures for Jesus, one place that we can come especially is to the Gospels. Because here we have four portraits, four records of this man's life, ministry, message, death, and resurrection. Each a unique contribution each bringing something to the table that the others don't bring, but all of them together as one chorus, kind of like us singing whatever we just sang, Matt, um, with vibrato, uh, making this chorus that is together a, a wonderful picture of our Lord and our Savior Jesus. So we come to Luke's Gospel, and we're going to be in Luke's Gospel at least until Advent and maybe beyond that um, for some time. Now look at Luke. We're going to look at the first four verses of Luke chapter 1. If you've got a Bible, open it back up to Luke's Gospel. Luke claims for us to be a faithful guide to this person called Jesus and to God's work in and through him. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely or carefully for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is one sentence in the Greek. This sentence is like, if you will, um, a big stone archway leading you into a building of substance and and, 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 uh, of significance. This is Luke here echoing in many ways Greco-Roman historiography. They're not just don't want to make too much of that, but there are certainly echoes in here of a standard piece of history writing in the first century world. And Luke is signaling to us, his audience, that he has taken the time, the thought, and the energy to make what we're about to read worth our while. He's saying this is something substantial. This is something significant. And what does he say? He basically gives a list of his credentials. He says, um, he locates himself first in the, in the climate of the day. He says, I'm aware, first of all, of the prior written accounts of this person and his ministry, Jesus. Verse 1. Many have undertaken. He's not criticizing the many. He's just saying there have been many accounts. Now, um, broad guesses, uh, we don't know exactly when Luke's gospel was written, but Let's just say approximately Jesus dies in 30 A.D. Luke's gospel was written sometime probably between 65 and 85 A.D., depending on which brand of scholarship you follow. So Luke's not writing that far after the time of Jesus. But by this time in the first century world, there have been account after account written of the person of Jesus. And it's very likely, uh, and, and, and almost certainty, that many of these accounts were, spirit, were, were not reliable. Um, some of them were. Some of them weren't. But Luke says, I'm going to take up my place in the position of these accounts, those who've written an account of the life and ministry of Jesus, and contribute something to this scene in the first century. So he says, first, I'm aware of the prior 
accounts that have been written, the prior narratives. Secondly, verse 2, he says, um, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Lord have delivered them to us. In other words, I'm not just copying the things that have been written already, but I've had access to those who were eyewitnesses to Jesus, to his death, to his resurrection. Those that he'll mention later on in volume 2, the book of Acts, in chapter 1. Those disciples who had been with Jesus during his earthly ministry. These were the eyewitnesses and the ministers of the word. Those who were faithful, reliable, trustworthy um, ministers who passed on this message, this life-giving message about who Jesus was. Luke says, I've not only read the other sources, but I've had access to those who were first-hand witnesses to this man, Jesus, who have delivered them to us. And then he says a couple of things more. Again, he's building his credentials for us as a community to listen to what he has to say. In verse 3, he says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely. Two key things in verse 3. Closely or carefully is the first thing. And then an orderly account is the second thing. Luke is saying that I've done my homework. Many of you in this room do research. You know what it means to go to a library and to look up sources and to go find people and to do interviews. Luke is saying in a similar way, though he wasn't a modern human being, he was an ancient one, but he's saying in a similar way, I've done my homework and I've given careful attention to these things. Careful attention. So there's a, a claim here to accuracy at some level. And then he says also that um, he's written an orderly account. Now, without wanting to get us too sidetracked on what that might mean, um, an ancient historian was not bound to give us the news as Channel 7 might give us the news or something to that effect, which we all know is completely unbiased and objective. Um, an ancient historian was encouraged to use the, the arts of history writing, of placement, of selection of events, and leaving out other events, and ordering those events in a compelling and persuasive narrative, not in some way to make it inaccurate or unreliable, but to persuade his audience about the truth of what he's saying. And so we could understand an orderly account as this kind of concept of persuasive order. He's taken, he's taken the tradition, oral and written, and he's compiled it together in a means to, to communicate something to his audience that's persuasive about this person, Jesus, and accurate as well. And then he says also that he's writing for Theophilus. Now, some have said this, is, this because it means lovers of God is, is some kind of code word for anyone and everyone who, who has an interest in God. I think it's a better read to say that Theophilus is a real person. Um, certainly a person of, of advanced social status at some level. But he's one who is aware of Jesus because he says, I've written that you might have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So Theophilus already has some knowledge of Jesus and of the followers that, that are walking after him in that present day. And maybe he even identifies with that community of followers. But it's clear from Luke's preface here that Theophilus has some gaps. There are some significant gaps in his knowledge and his understanding about who this Jesus is. Now, I think this is significant because as we take up this gospel in the 21st century, many of us in this room may be aware of Jesus. Um, in fact, we may be identifying with his followers in some way. But we may, like Theophilus, have certain gaps in our understanding of who 
this Jesus really is and of the way that he lived his life. And so in a lot of ways, what Luke is doing for Theophilus, he's also doing for us and for all those who have read his work down through history, is he's beginning to fill out a picture and, and show us a fuller picture of the significance of this one called Jesus. So Luke, in these first four verses, is saying, I am a reliable and trustworthy guide for you to follow, to learn more about this one that you've heard about, perhaps even know and follow. But I am a reliable guide. Now, a guide to what? I've been talking about he's writing about Jesus, but there's a hint here in verse 1 that it's something bigger and broader than that, that this gospel is going to launch into something much, much grander than just a biography of a person called Jesus. He says, to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, the things that have been accomplished among us, or that have been fulfilled among us. That means that there's a pre-story. There's a history to the story. And that also means that there's someone who was accomplishing them. There was someone who was fulfilling them. In other words, what Luke is claiming to be a guide to is not just a narrative about a man called Jesus who lived 30 years before he wrote, but he's claiming to give us access to a, a perspective about what God, the creator of heaven and earth, the God who was in the beginning, as Genesis says, was actually doing in and through this one called Jesus. So he's saying, I'm not just going to be a guide to some detail in the first century, but I'm going to be your guide to understand that these events demand this interpretation. Three people could watch the resurrection of Jesus. One could say, well, he never really died. Another could say, well, he didn't really rise from the dead. That was just a kind of manifestation or a ghost or something. And the third one could say, no, actually, Jesus did die and Jesus did rise bodily, physically, and walked among us again. What I mean to say is that the events of history by themselves, the bare facts of history, aren't enough to get us to a, a proper confession of faith. There can be different interpretations of the same events. We know that by watching Fox News versus CBS. Different interpretations of the same events. And what Luke is saying in this prologue to his gospel is that he has a perspective on these events that he's narrating. He is, he is giving to us an authoritative and accurate interpretation of the life history, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and then of the beginning and the expansion of his ministry through the church in the book of Acts. So he's inviting us to follow him as a reliable guide to what God is doing, what God has pronounced upon these events that have taken place in space, in time, and in history, and saying, come and follow me. And why is he doing this? Why is he taking the time and the effort to do this for Theophilus? and for those who will read this work. Verse 4, that you may have certainty, certainty, concerning these things to which you have been taught. The Gospel writers take this up as their purpose. John is similar. 
he writes in, in, at the end of his gospel, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Luke is not an unbiased reporter. He's a confessional believer who follows this one called Jesus as his Lord and who is writing in order that you and I might know with greater certainty the things that we have received that have been passed down to us, maybe from our parents, certainly from the church, maybe from a friend who introduced us to Jesus. But Luke's purpose is to increase your level of certainty, of conviction, of confidence about the things that you've been taught. So here's the problem as we begin to bring this introductory message around to a close. The problem is that we live in an age of skepticism and doubt. The problem is, is that, that when someone like Luke writes and says, These, this is what I've set out to do and I'm trustworthy and you can believe me, we live in an age where our first inclination is to doubt, to disbelieve, to not trust. And so, even though Luke is offering himself to us as a guide, a reliable and faithful guide into these events that literally change the world, they're about God. None of us as creatures are excluded from the Creator and what He's doing. We push back and we say that actually this, isn't, this is a fabricated story. This is unreliable. I can't follow it. And when we do that, there's nothing new about our response. Some of the earliest opponents of the Christian faith, Chelsus in the second century, Porphyry in the third century, Julian the apostate in the fourth century, all take a similar tact and argument when arguing against the Christian faith. They attack the reliability of the gospel's witness about who Jesus is. This argument against the reliability of the Gospels has been there really from the beginning as Christianity became a known entity in the ancient Roman Empire. Its most, sale, its, its most incisive critics went to this place and started saying, you know what, even though Luke's Gospel says this, it's not really true. How can we be expected to believe that this story that affects all humankind was faithfully passed on and given to us from people who were already biased and believed in Jesus as the Messiah? That question has been around for a long time, well before Bart Ehrman started writing books that sold lots of copies. Bart Ehrman is, is a textual critic um, who was once a, a follower of Jesus, who's, who's walked into atheism, or agnosticism at least, wrote books called Misquoting Jesus and, and Jesus Interrupted and other things, um, and they've been selling a lot. Or you could go back to the beginning of the Enlightenment in many ways, where the, the shackles of tradition, of what had been passed on to the church, was, were to be broken, and escaped by, by un, unaided, objective reason. In the birth of this kind of movement, uh, a German named Rimeris, N.T. Wright, describes him, his, Rimeris' conclusion about Jesus and the reliability of the Gospels like this. Jesus was a revolutionary who tried and failed. The disciples were deceivers who propagated a view of Jesus they knew to be false. Rimeris, in his mind, had unearthed the historical Jesus antithetical to the Christ of faith, and he hoped it would be the demise of Christianity as he knew it. And Rimeris has had many children and grandchildren down to this day. I raise all of this at this moment because I know it's there. 
I know that if you're not asking those questions or thinking those thoughts, the people that you run into on a daily basis are asking those questions and thinking those thoughts. Think of the Da Vinci Code and the the ongoing stream in our culture to, to shed doubt upon the reliability of the biblical witness about who Jesus is. So I want to I end by saying, why should we trust Luke's testimony? Why should we trust Luke's testimony? And let me say a couple of things. The first I've already said is that Luke is writing 30 to 50 years after the death of Jesus. Luke is writing so close to the events about which, that, that he's narrating that it would be very difficult for Luke to fabricate a whole story um, and create all kinds of, 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 of vignettes and things that had no accurate um, rootedness in the tradition that already existed in his day. It would be a very difficult thing for Luke to do that. Luke's gospel is corroborated by three other gospels that we have in the biblical witness that while each of them is unique and has some distinct contributions to make to our understanding of Jesus, they all nonetheless run in the same grand river, pointing to the same basic themes about Jesus' significance in his life and death and resurrection. The manuscript evidence for the Gospels is overwhelming relative to any other ancient work of literature. Literally overwhelming in terms of the reliability that we actually have access to what Luke actually wrote. Also, the best, I would say, some of the best scholarship of today in terms of the the history of who Jesus was gives us great reason to believe that the picture painted of Jesus in the Gospels is historically reliable and trustworthy. And I could throw out a name like N.T. Wright as someone who's carved a path forward for understanding the Gospels as reliable in their picture of who Jesus is. But lastly, I want to suggest... um, one thing here. Luke, by virtue of being an author with great literary skill, is obviously someone who, who comes from a well-educated, higher echelon position in the ancient world. He's said to be the best writer in the New Testament. He's clearly a very learned person. Theophilus, his, um, his audience is also, as we've already said, someone of advanced status. So here's the interesting thing is that Luke writes to Theophilus about a king, Jesus, and a kingdom that he inaugurates, which literally turns upside down the status and privilege that Luke himself and Theophilus would enjoy. So follow me here. He's writing a gospel, and we'll get into this very quickly, but listen to what Mary says in her song. She talks about God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Luke writes of this gospel that literally confronts the values of every age, not just our own age, and turns them on their head in a way that would cut against his own privilege and status in a first century world. And that has to say something about his reliability. So we want to come to the heart of things this fall. We want to come to the center of the Christian faith, to Jesus, to looking at the story of Jesus as narrated to us by Luke, this careful writer who has written for us an orderly account of Jesus' life. And we want to see that our lives will be utterly turned upside down and challenged by this Jesus.
We could look, we could, we could flick this message, as many have and continue to do, as an unreliable uh, kind of hocus pocus, hocus pocus thing that doesn't really have any teeth to it. Or we could choose this path of trust, of submitting ourselves in our limited perspectives to God's word, to God's declaration to us in this gospel, and find that our lives will be literally turned upside down and changed by the encounter that we have with this carpenter's son from Galilee who preaches a kingdom that's literally upside down from the kingdoms that we know, who preaches a way of life that follows his own way to the cross of laying down our lives for the sake of others instead of getting more stuff for me. That's the invitation to us this fall, is to come to this text, to come trustingly, to come humbly, to come open, to come longing for God to make himself known to us again as a community. And that's my prayer for us as we come to the Gospel of Luke, that we'll take up this reliable guide, we'll sit at his feet and allow the Holy Spirit to work in us afresh and anew, that we might gain greater certainty about the things that we've been taught. Amen.